Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura here with the TJs again. TJ Dahl, how you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Good. And TJ Ingracia, how are you, young sir? Good, doing well. All right, good. So we are closing out our series of five episodes on the Marvel comic universe with this episode. And we are talking about two movies, again, as we have in the past. Uh, The first one is Thor Ragnarok, and the second one is The Avengers Endgame. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this. Probably my favorite Marvel character is Thor, and uh, he was certainly highlighted in these uh, uh, these films. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking about this, um, uh, particularly because, honestly, I enjoyed these two movies an awful lot. I remember avoiding Thor Ragnarok just because of the name. I mean, the name just sounded so stupid to me. I had no <laughs> desire to go see it, right? And so, uh, and and honestly, I was not that thrilled, at least with the first Thor movie. I didn't think was that good a movie when I saw it. So, I, uh, But when I saw this movie, boy, oh boy, did I love it. It was really something different. It was really something funny. Uh, it was really something special, I thought. So I'm happy to be talking about it today. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth's performance in this film, it's really almost like a different Thor character. He's very different from the first couple of Thor films, and I think for the better. Yes. Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, actually, and TJ, I'm curious to get your opinion on that. Just as a non-comic book reader, from the first couple films, he's almost kind of a male bimbo, like just kind of (laughs) self-absorbed, very like speaks in, you know, high kind of language, kind of dumb a little bit. He's much more endearing in the later films. In the comics, he's not an eight. I can't say precisely what type he is, but yes, there's the kind of the pseudo almost Shakespearean language that he's given. And then the font of his dialogue in the comics is written in kind of a a faux old timey style. And there's this kind of heightened sense, this almost pretentiousness of like, we are in the realm of mythological beings. So everything we do and say is tremendously important. And here are these connections to the other nine realms of you know, the Norse mythological world in which, of course, everybody speaks English and has ancient weapons, but has also mastered interstellar travel. And it, it just kind of collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions and pretensions. And I found it profoundly uninteresting, even when the comic was written by writers that I adore. I just, it seemed like you can't really do anything with this character. Also, he's invulnerable. So what can you do with that? He's just endlessly mighty and powerful and never loses. So they just set him up against giant monsters. And I just always found it tedious. It never seems to have occurred to anybody to give him a sense of humor. 
And so that's what was interesting to me about this, because in the earlier movies, at least, and I, I don't even know that I saw the second Thor movie. If I did, I blocked it out of my mind. Uh, but we start to see in some of the Avengers movies that we've already talked about that it's almost as if there's a comedian itching to get out in Chris Hemsworth, right? I'm not that familiar with his work beyond um, his character of Thor, but we start to see a really interesting comedic actor, I think, right? Especially in Endgame. I mean, I think he's great in Ragnarok, but I really love what he did with Endgame, and I'm looking forward to talking about that as well. But um, so, yeah, so it was almost as if there was this dull character with an interesting actor waiting to turn it into an interesting character waiting to come out, right, uh, as, as we went into these. So uh, I was happy to see it blossom. Uh, TJ, uh, TJ Dahl, why don't you give us the um, summary of Thor Ragnarok and explain just what the heck Ragnarok means, and uh, then we'll move into our discussion about it. So this is the summary filled with all the spoilers that are to spoil on Thor Ragnarok, which was released in 2017. It was a huge hit as kind of building on what we mentioned, a surprise hit. It was directed by Taika Waititi, who's a comedy director who's known for such comedic projects as What We Do in the Shadows and Jojo Rabbit got an Oscar for that and a number of TV series, which I'll mention later. Uh, the movie starts with Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, who's battling the giant demon Surtur and steals his crown, preventing him from destroying Asgard, according to the prophecy that it's his destiny to bring about Ragnarok, which is the Asgardian Armageddon. This is supposed to happen when Surtur's crown is placed in the eternal flame, which lies in Odin's palace, among other treasures. So Thor returns to Asgard, reveals that Loki, Tom Hiddleston, has been posing as Odin for some time. The two travel to Earth. They witness the actual Odin's final moments, in which he reveals that he actually has a firstborn daughter, Hela, the goddess of death. And he had banished her because of her bloodthirsty appetites, and with his death, she'll be able to return. He dies. She returns. She's played by Kate Blanchett. She promptly shatters Thor's hammer and follows the two of them as they try and escape back to Asgard through the mystical portal of the Bifrost. And she throws them out of the travel portal they're in, out into space. She arrives at Asgard, demands that all the Asgardians kneel to her and acknowledge her as their new queen, and she kills everyone who doesn't. She then plans to launch endless conquests and rule over more than just the Nine Realms, but everything everywhere. Thor finds himself on the planet of Sakaar. He's enslaved and made to fight as a gladiator against the Hulk, the reigning champion of the Grand Master, played by uh, wonderful Jeff Goldblum. He ends up beating the Hulk, and then he engineers an escape and helps the Hulk revert into his Bruce Banner form and assembles a strike team to return to Asgard to fight Hela. A raging battle ensues, with Thor coming to understand that his command of thunder was never dependent on his mystical, powerful hammer. The magic was in him the whole time. And even with the power to command lightning, he accepts that Hela is stronger than him. So he sends Loki to place Surtur's stolen crown in the eternal flame in Odin's palace, bringing Surtur to Asgard and bringing about Ragnarok, because Surtur is the only one strong enough to beat Hela. The Asgardians board a spaceship and escape, and they watch Asgard explode, and they take strength from the realization that Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. And they head off to find a new home with Thor as their king. Great. Uh, TJ Ingrassia, what was your take on this movie? I think it's a great film. As you said, there's a lot of great comic relief in this movie. Jeff Goldblum is just spectacular, as always. But I feel like he's almost 
in a lot of recent stuff, I feel like Jeff Goldblum has almost become a caricature of himself. And he's like, he's playing Jeff Goldblum, right. but it works really well in this film. <laughs> the thing that I liked about Thor Ragnarok is that it's such a perfect description. And TJ alluded to this earlier about Thor being an eight. I'm just going to assume that we're all, we're all on board with that. Uh-huh. If it's physically possible to disagree with that, <laughs> but just the whole film is basically this giant question for Thor of like, where is my power? How do I have my power? What happened to my power? How do I get my power back? My sister wants the power, just power. I mean, that could be like the subtitle of the film. It could just be Thor power. As TJ said, in the end, Thor discovers that the power wasn't in the hammer. It was in himself all along. Yes. The hero's journey. Yes, exactly. So yeah, if you're, if, if you're looking for an eight film, this is the one for you. TJ Dahl, would you uh, comment on that? I agree with all of that. And then I think the movie also has a huge dose of seven in there. Yeah. My guess, not knowing a tremendous amount about Chris Hemsworth outside of this role, is my guess is that he's a seven in real life. The director, Taika Waititi, I've been doing a deep dive because I've just fallen in love with him. And I believe he's a seven as well. He had the cast improvise about 80% of the dialogue in this movie. And there are many moments of physical comedy and just, just random things that it would be shocking to me if I were to discover that they weren't devised in the moment. And there's this overall fun as complimenting, not in competition with, but complimenting the awesome grandeur of the movie. They're constantly building up the huge awesomeness and then undercutting it with a joke. And it works. The humor works tremendously. And something Taika Waititi said was that Chris Hemsworth, he considered to be the secret weapon of these Marvel movies in that he was hilarious and he was never really allowed to be hilarious. So he thought, well, what if we lean into that? What if we really let him be funny? And he was more than up for the task. And it doesn't diminish from his stature. It doesn't diminish from his power. It doesn't diminish from how heroic and mighty he is. I I, I like to think that there are some eights out there who have a sense of humor. Uh, And this movie struck me as a movie about an eight made by a seven. Um, and through a seven-ish lens and potentially starring a seven. I, I, I don't know, right? So uh, because there's a huge amount of seven energy in it. There was a quote I found by Taika Watiti says, I think the overall sense that I'm trying to give to the audience and what I want the audience to leave the cinema carrying with them is a sense of joy, really. Sometimes I would stop and think, I'm doing a movie that's got Thor and Doctor Strange and the Incredible Hulk and Loki, and every character is so strange and different. Civil War is just humans and humans with human problems. Ours is creatures and beings and all these sorts of really different characters, right? And I think that just seven is joy and enthusiasm and excitement about life in general just exudes through this movie. It was a laugh-out-loud funny movie, right? I mean, I had seen it before, and I watched it twice in preparation for this, and uh, watched it, my wife watched it with me twice, and we both laughed out loud both times, uh, particularly when Bruce Banner decides to reveal to uh, 142 that he is the Hulk by jumping out of the spaceship and and lands in a flop (laughs) on the bridge. Uh, I mean, just funny, funny stuff. And even the opening scene, which, you know, kind of set the tone where he's spinning on the chain, right? He's, he's, uh, Thor is chained up in front of the 
the what's the guy's name searcher searcher um and you know just the 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 movement of the chain where he's starting to spin and when he starts to turn his back to him he says okay hold on a minute wait wait just you know as this guy is threatening to roast him and kill him and all these things so just funny funny stuff all the way through and the other seven-ish sort of themes, definitely Jeff Goldblum, and I agree with what you guys said. Um, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, if Jeff Goldblum's not a seven, I don't know what is. Um, I really can't think of any character where I've seen him as anything other than a seven. And there was a great line that I saw here. Let me see if I can find it real fast. The description of Grandmaster who Jeff Goldblum plays. He's one of the elders of the universe who rules the planet Sakar and enjoys manipulating lesser life forms. Goldblum describes the character as, quote, a hedonist, a pleasure seeker, an enjoyer of life and tastes and smells. You know, <laughs> sh shall we go any further, right? Uh, Hello, you know. type seven. Uh, yeah. So, um, and there was a great scene there too, just to to emphasize the seven thing, which I, you know, because that's all the kind of stereotype stuff of the seven. But there's that scene where his assistant says to him that the slaves are revolting, or you know, and he's rebelling, and he says, "Oh no, 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 I don't like that word. Don't use that word." And she says, "What? Rebelling?" And he says, "No, no, the S word, right?" And she says, "Oh." okay, the prisoners who have jobs are, are rebelling. And for me, you know, one of the challenges that sevens have, and I encounter this in working with sevens all the time, is just this desire to not face unpleasantness, right? It's not so much a fear of conflict. It's just a, I just don't want to hear about unpleasantness. And that was such a great scene of, oh, I don't like that word. You know, I'm an evil guy who has slaves and pits them against each other to be killed and tortured and all these other sort of things. But yeah, I don't, I, you know, let's, let's put a, a nice face on this somehow. Right. And then when she says prisoners with jobs, he kind of pauses and smiles and then they keep walking on. <laughs> exactly. There's just such moments of joy and glee in, um, in, in the Goldblum character that I, I just wanted to see more of them all throughout. Another bit of sevenness in there in general is just what an overwhelming job it is, I imagine, to direct a feature film, much less a feature film that's heavy on special effects. And any of the behind the scenes stuff that I watched, whether it was interviewees saying as much or just the impression I got from watching the footage, was that Taika Waititi made it tremendously enjoyable. He wanted it to be fun. He was having fun. He helped the actors have fun. And he played a minor role in the movie in a motion capture suit. So it's not like he had the luxury just to be behind the camera. He was often in front of the camera, but he's getting the actors to improvise. Part of what he's doing is he's bringing out the best of them as well as keeping all of these many, many balls in the air, which I think speaks to healthy sevenness. Not that a healthy seven is the only person who can be a film director. It's just when a seven is healthy, they can multitask with great proficiency and imbue what they do with joy and bring the best out of other people with joy. One thing about this movie uh, for me, it almost felt like two different movies. Okay, so there was the, the, the movie that was dealing with Hela, the sister. Okay, and then there was the movie that, you know, more had to do with the, uh, uh, the Grandmaster part of it, right? And uh, the tones weren't dramatically different. Well, they were different, I felt. Okay, but they worked. It worked as one movie but also felt like two movies to me. I don't know. Did you guys have a similar reaction? Curious. 
Yeah, I think the the Hella scenes were definitely darker, although she does have sort of a dark sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So there is some of that comedy worked in, although it's not the Grandmaster, uh, the interactions, sort of the buddy moments between Thor and Banner. There's almost a slapstick element to it, which wasn't part of the Hella part, but it was definitely a darker, you know, sort of like a, a lighter half and a darker half of the film. Yeah. There's also just a different technological feel in that the world of the Grandmaster involves spaceships and, you know, laser control discs that you can put on somebody's necks that shock them and that kind of thing. Whereas Asgard is the world of battle axes and swords and stonemasons and such. Uh, so there, there's that tonal difference as well in that they somehow coexist in the same universe. And then there's the fact that on Asgard, Hela, as serious and as she's the goddess of death, who's her second in command? Scourge, played by Carl Urban. And one of the great joys for me in watching this movie again, not once but twice, was that I'd entirely forgotten about that character and forgotten what an outstanding comedic performance Carl Urban gives, and he could not be more deadpan. And the yes. thing that I knew him best for, and maybe the only thing I knew him for, was the Lord of the Rings movies, where he plays Eomer. He's son of King Theoden. So he's that chesty leading man who's perfectly at home in a fantastical setting, riding horses, fighting with a sword, the end of the world at stake. And this is very similar in terms of setting, style, seemingly in tone. And he plays it very seriously and then constantly says ridiculous things with no self-awareness whatsoever. And every time he was on screen, I just fell out of my seat laughing. And the one moment I want to highlight is when somebody has stolen the sword that activates the Bifrost, which is the travel system, and they've gathered the remaining Asgardians. And he says to them something to the effect that someone has stolen this sword. Unless it's returned, there will be consequences. And then he pauses and then turns back to the crowd and says, bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I had to rewind that because there was a possibility that he'd said big ones, which would have made sense and would have kind of <laughs> accentuated and deepened what he'd originally said. But then to, to say bad ones, suddenly we're now in the realm of ridiculous lack of self-awareness, but done without winking at the camera in the slightest. And I could not have loved him more. I, I would agree. That was a wonderful performance by a, what could have been a very minor role. I think the one of the early scenes when he was trying to impress the two women and then not hearing Thor's you know plea to be transported. And uh, just when it cut to him and he's holding that exercise thing that's just shaking up and down. The I mean, shake weight. I just... <laughs> The shake, yeah. I mean, I just, I just lost it. It was so perfect, and he was able to take a character who, when you think about it, was not. It was kind of a despicable guy, right? Because he caved at the first moment of danger and started serving Hela. But you still liked him enough to, or at least I did. You liked him enough to forgive him at the end when he got a conscience and sacrificed himself for the yeah for he the redeems character. himself there at the end he, he did he did and uh so so yeah great performance there um any thoughts on the kate blanchett portrayal of hella from a enneagram perspective i'm curious of your thoughts would you put an enneagram type on her she seemed like a pretty big eight to me uh motivated by power and conquest she's confident in her power so she's got like like has shown up in a lot of movies that we've talked about real groundedness in her power. She doesn't have to yell at someone to show her status. She just exudes that kind of power and seems to enjoy shattering Thor's hammer. When she shatters it, he says, "That's this is not possible. And she says, darling, you have no idea what's possible. Yeah. And yeah. 
a big part of what she does is she wants to strip the illusions from everybody's eyes on how brutal things are. Mm. Mm. So that can be a very eightish thing too, is the world is a jungle and so many people just walk around in this Pollyanna-ish fog, believing that everything's all kittens and rainbows. And I'm here to tell you it's not. This kingdom was formed on blood, on conquest, on murder, which I participated in and you all benefit from and kneel down before me because we're going to go do a whole lot more of it. Interesting. Uh, TJ and Gracia? Yeah, I agree with all that. In the scene where she shows up at Asgard, she's being confronted by the armies of Asgard. And she says to them, talking about Asgard, we were once the seat of absolute power in the cosmos. Our supremacy was unchallenged. Yet Odin stopped at nine realms. Our destiny is to rule over all others. And I am here to restore that power. Kneel before me. I mean, if that's, <laughs> that's not an eight statement, I don't know what else it could possibly be. <laughs> There's one of my all-time favorite movie lines um, when people ask me, you know, what's it like to be inside the head of an eight is um, Conan the Barbarian when they're training Conan and uh, they ask him, Conan, what is the ultimate good in life? And he says, the ultimate good in life is to drive your enemies before you and hear the lamentations of their women, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> Which, which uh, again, it's just this, um, yeah, not the healthiest version of the eight that we're, we're talking about here. Um, and um, but yeah, so I buy that. I I don't I, I don't get the sense that Kate Blanchett is an eight. Uh, she didn't feel energetically to me like an eight, but certainly the motivation of the character and the behaviors of the character seemed uh, pretty eightish, right? Um, because it was about vengeance, destruction. Uh, anger, just plain out anger and at having been mistreated. And, I, and TJ, your point about her wanting to reveal the truth, I hadn't thought of that, but absolutely, that's uh, very much an eight-ish thing. So there's that scene where, uh, for example, she knocks down the, uh, the ceiling, the, the paintings from the ceiling, and you see what really happened and so forth. So there's this kind of truth teller uh, element to eights, uh, even if they're doing it to uh, as uh, using truth as a weapon very often, which I think was a good example here. So Mario, I'm curious, just as an eight for you, the interplay between Thor's character as an eight and Hela's character as an eight, you know, similarities, differences, how did you feel it sort of juxtaposed those two? So it's interesting. So one of the things I've been trying to figure out is if what subtype I would put Thor into. I think some of the earlier ones, there's more of a transmitting version of Thor as the transmitting eight. Uh, I think he starts to sort of evolve into more of a navigating eight or become more of a navigating eight sort of character, whereas Hela is more the transmitting eight. Okay, um, and so the tonal difference there is there's uh, again the, just I guess somatically the uh, Kate. Uh, Blanchett character portrayal didn't feel eightish to me, right? It just didn't feel like an embodied sort of character. Whereas with the the Chris Hemsworth character, I can feel it a bit more, right? But there's also, I mean, besides the fact that one of them is, you know, a, an unhealthy goddess of death, uh, and the you know the other one is a is a psychologically healthier, you know, and more balanced character. Um, there just seemed like more of a uh, attunement and sensitivity to responsibility to the group 
which you see in more of the navigating version of the eight. Okay, so um, if that helps. Um, I'll tell you what was more interesting as an eight versus eight sort of um, dynamic was Thor and Hulk, right? Because even though I think Bruce Banner is a nine, the Hulk's an eight, right? I mean, you know, when he comes out, that's a very eight-ish, you know, Hulk smash sort of thing. And they're having that great conversation about their rage, and the fire of their rage and they're trying to one-up each other right and compare the force of their rage you know and even hulk is telling him oh smoldering fire you know and you know whereas i'm a, a burning flame you know fire so forth so there's this competitiveness between the two of them that is a really eight on eight dynamic that i found interesting as well as the competitiveness of the two of them in the fighting ring yes and how they both really seem to enjoy it it's fun to have a worthy opponent. This is something that um, is very, very eight-ish. Um, and uh, at the risk of jumping ahead, um, so I won't, <laughs> uh, Thor is always testing people to find out who is a worthy opponent and who is not. And he takes pleasure, to your point, in having a worthy opponent and maybe some of that is because he's immortal right so you know i mean i need some sort of challenge to you know to test myself against um but it's this respect for those who stand up for themselves and who assert themselves his relationship with the valkyrie is that uh, tessa thompson the, the actress's name uh, kind of an eight-ish character as well um, I, I thought especially in her excessive drinking and violence and all these things uh, so uh, so um yeah so this this respect for those who are strong uh, is absolutely a, a characteristic there yeah i've, I've tell people and I've learned this the hard way with eights, you know, eights will do this thing where they'll walk up to you and maybe not physically, but verbally or emotionally, they'll kind of like poke you in the chest a little bit. Mm -hmm. And what they want and what they respect is if you push them back twice as hard. So if you want, if you want to earn the respect of an eight, you cannot roll over you. And that's how they play. That's how they yeah. connect is by sparring and fighting and finding an yes. equal. So stand up for yourself with an eight. Yes. TJ? Something to add to all of this is that Thor's ultimate victory comes in acknowledging that Hela is stronger than him. He doesn't go down like, I will kill you no matter what. He very rationally senses that I can't beat you, but this other being can. Yes. And in doing so, he's dedicating himself to something bigger than himself. And that's something that Russ Hudson and Don Riso talk about in The Wisdom of the Enneagram is some of the highest growth for an eight is realizing that it's not about me, my might, my personal power. I can dedicate myself to something bigger than myself. I might even sacrifice myself to something bigger. And in doing so, that's actually the big power move of all. Yes. And they end up have eights have a much greater legacy than if they'd gone down with the ship. Yes. And you, you see, you know, um, as you guys know, when I'm trying to help my clients grow, I always encourage them to figure out ways in which they can be more of this thing they desire in a healthier way. And that's a great example of it. The lesson for eights is you can be more powerful by recognizing your limitations and 
turning responsibility over or empowering other people who can then go on and be more powerful. And that is the downfall of many eights in business and in politics and in life in general, this idea that, no, I have to be the one who wins the battle, right? I have to be the champion and not saying, okay, I, to your point, I can't do this, but he can. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that um, just to, again, kind of give a feel for what this looks like in eights that a lot of people don't understand. I always say is when uh, two fighters hug each other at the end of a fight, right? Uh, either boxers or MMA fighters who are spending, you know, the, the last half hour trying to pound each other's brains in, right? And doing it with real hatred in their hearts. But then once the fight is over, they show this respect and, 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 and true love of the competition and the competitor through embracing at the end. Uh, that's how I can always tell eights in fights is that they hug at the end, uh, ironically. Other thoughts, observations about Ragnarok? I love the character that Taika Waititi played in the motion capture suit, Korg. He's this big <laughs> rock beast, which I found out in a YouTube clip of an interview with him is now the most popular fictional character in the country of New Zealand. And he has a New Zealand accent. And he is in some ways a personification of New Zealand. He's very friendly. He's very accepting. He has no ill will at all. Uh, you know, towards the end when he's leading a revolution and they're about to leave on this ginormous spaceship and Loki says, you look like you could use a leader. He says, oh, thanks. Come on board. You know, he does, there's no sense of like, but I'm much bigger than you and <laughs> we're rescuing you. Who are you to say this? It's like, yeah, the more the merrier. Come on board. And he's just so easygoing and wonderful and is a gentle giant. The fact that he's a nine doesn't mean he's a pushover. Doesn't mean he doesn't have strength. He doesn't have power. He's a gladiator and he fights on the undercard and kills opponents and he's good at it. And yet there's this tremendous gentleness to him and he's just wonderful and very easy to watch. And that character could have been played any number of other ways. Right. I agree. Wonderful character. And there was even the part where towards the end where he's holding uh, Mick uh, Mick, uh, under his meek. arm, the, the meek, okay. Meek, um, the bug with, uh, you know, who fights with blades in his hands and thinking he's dead, you know, oh, I just felt bad. So I'm holding on to him here, you know, and then finds out he's alive. Oh, Hey meek. You know, so <laughs> yeah, a wonderful character. I agree. There's a great, uh, line when Thor is talking to him and Thor's telling him about how, he lost his power and his sister destroyed his hammer. There's this really good empathetic moment where uh, Korg says, sounds like you had a special relationship with this hammer and losing it was like losing a loved one. <laughs> Which does speak to Thor's relationship to the hammer, but also Korg's sort of you know empathy in connection with him. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's great. I'll tell you another thing I found interesting about this movie was the use of the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin. And my understanding was, is that when Taiko Watiki, uh, Watiti. Watiti, thank you. I knew I was going to butcher that name throughout the episode, um, showed his kind of concept reel to the executives at Marvel. That's the song that he used to, um, to show different clips. Because I think what he did was he gathered clips from other movies that he wanted to kind of, you know, use as uh, inspiration for this movie. And uh, they liked it so much that the, the, you know they ended up using it, uh, using the song. I think the, the does the movie start off with that song and then it comes back again when Thor is fighting Hela. 
in that opening scene when he's spinning on the chain and then he holds out his hand and the hammer comes to him and then he starts kicking ass, that's when it kicks in. So yeah, within the first few minutes. Yeah, so what, what for me, that song captures this and actually kind of tied together nicely the two different themes or the two, two what felt like two movies for me, right? Because that song is both exuberant and kick ass, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's both harsh and joyful at the same time. And I think the use of that to sort of tie things together during the climactic uh, battle scene was really well done. It also, of course, tied into this idea of the Asgardians being immigrants and, uh, you know, being a people rather than a place. And it contains the lyric, Hammer of the Gods. Ah, there you go. Boy, so it's working on all kinds of levels, huh? Led Zeppelin has elements of yes. grand fantasy in many of yes. their songs. You know, they've got a couple songs that name check Lord of the Rings, for instance. That's, mm. there's, the, there's the part of them that's bluesy. There's the part of them that's hard rock. And there's the part that's epic fantasy. And then yes. folk too, like almost medieval folk, Celtic folk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of Celtic influences in there too. Great. All right. So uh, any final words about Thor Ragnarok before we move on to Endgame? There's one line when uh, Thor and Loki are riding the elevator, and this is kind of their goodbye. And Thor is accepting that Loki isn't going to come with him. And he says, you're becoming predictable. Life is about growth, but you seem to want to just stay the same. You're the god of mischief, but you could be so much more. Pardon me. He says that after he's overcome Loki, after he's you know secretly attached one of those control discs to him and shocked him. But that seemed a pretty palpable theme in the movie too. Life is about growth. We see Thor evolve within that movie. And that's a message that isn't just relevant to eights. That's to every single one of us is what is our concept of who we are and how we need to be to survive, how we need to be to get the thing that our personality demands that we get. And that that's not necessarily a law of nature. That's a voice from inside and that that can evolve and change. And when we listen to it and when we actually do evolve and change, it can literally open up a whole new world. And transformation and growth are two great terms for what Thor does in the next film we're going to talk about. <laughs> if you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. So let's use that as our transition here, okay, and start uh, talking about our next movie, which is The Avengers Endgame. Something completely different from Thor Ragnarok in tone um and and mood as far as i'm concerned right one of the things i noticed about thor ragnarok i don't know that there was a single scene shot that felt like a real place 
It seemed to me that that whole darn movie was made on a soundstage, except perhaps when they go to 177 Bleecker Street, uh, very briefly, to meet Doctor Strange. I read somewhere that was a street in Brisbane, but it seemed like everything else was uh, set on a soundstage. So, um, different, different feel to the Avengers Endgame, which is the final movie in the Avengers saga, at least for now. And TJ Ingrassio, you're going to tell us about that movie, huh? I am. So buckle in. <laughs> you got the easy ones. It lately, gets huh? longer every week. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So uh, Avengers Endgame opens 23 days after the events of Avengers Infinity War ended, with Thanos killing half of all the life in the universe. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, rescues Tony Stark and Nebula from their stranded spacecraft and flies them back to the Avengers compound. There, the Avengers plan to track Thanos down to the remote planet that he's been living on since he did his finger snap to get the Infinity Stones back from him and to use them to try to resurrect everyone that Thanos has just killed. They find Thanos, but discover that he has just used the Infinity Stones to destroy the Infinity Stones. His mission was complete. The stones no longer serve a purpose, so he reduced them to atoms, he said. Thor promptly cuts off Thanos' head, and the film jumps ahead five years. Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, escapes uh, by a random happenstance from the quantum realm that he's been trapped in. He makes his way to the Avengers compound, where he explains that although five years has passed in the real world, he only experienced it as five hours in the quantum realm. This leads them to theorize that the quantum realm could possibly allow for some kind of time travel. So the remaining Avengers travel to seek help from Tony Stark, who has gone into retirement with his wife Pepper and their daughter Morgan. Uh, at first, Tony refuses to help. He's afraid of losing the family and the life that he's built in the last five years. But eventually, he can't help himself. He solves the time travel problem and heads back to the Avenger compound to help. So together with Bruce Banner, who has since merged his consciousness with the Incredible Hulk to create this sort of Banner-Hulk hybrid thing, uh, they build a time machine. After doing this, Banner and Rocket the Raccoon travel to Norway to the Asgardian refugee camp of New Asgard to recruit Thor for their time heist, as they're going to call it. Uh, there they discover that Thor has sunk into uh, depression, has gained a massive amount of weight, and is spending his days drinking beer and playing video games. They eventually entice him to come back with them by tempting him with the beer that they have on their ship. At the same time, Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow, travels to Tokyo to recruit Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, who has become a vigilante assassin named Ronin since uh, the events of, of Thanos. Uh, his entire family was killed. He's very bitter and angry and in lots and lots of pain. And so he inflicts lots of pain on other people. But uh, she's able to recruit him back to the Avengers. Okay, so now the gang is all back together and the time heist commences. Banner, Lang, Steve Rogers, and Tony Stark travel to New York City in 2012 during the events of Loki's attack uh, from the first Avengers film. Banner is able to acquire the Time Stone from the Ancient One at the Sanctum Sanctorum that Doctor Strange will eventually protect. I guess I left out the minor detail. They're going back in time to get the Infinity Stones before Thanos right. is able to get them. That's the, right. that's the whole reason for this time heist. Okay, so uh, step one, Banner has acquired the Time Stone. Steve Rogers obtains the Mind Stone after fighting a past version of himself 
but Scott Lang and Tony Stark fail to acquire the Space Stone. Steve Rogers and Tony Stark then travel further back in time to 1970, where they're able to acquire an even older version of the Space Stone, along with some additional PIM particles, which allow them more time travel trips. Uh, up to this point, they've only had enough for one trip each, so if anything went wrong, they were going to be stranded in the past forever. Meanwhile, Rocket and Thor travel to Asgard in 2013 to acquire the Reality Stone. Thor is able to speak with his since-dead mother to get some closure, and he also reacquires his old hammer and discovers that he's still worthy despite uh, his dilapidated state. <laughs> Meanwhile, again, uh, Rhodey and Nebula travel to Morag in 2014 to acquire the Power Stone before Peter Quill is able to do so. Meanwhile, Natasha Romanoff and Clint Barton travel to Vormir in 2014 to acquire the Soul Stone. When they realize that one of them must sacrifice their life to obtain it, the two of them fight, but eventually Natasha Romanoff throws herself over the edge of the cliff, allowing Clint Barton to live and to return with the stone. Meanwhile, again, before being able to travel away from Morag, Nebula becomes cybernetically linked with her 2014 version of herself, which then allows Thanos to learn about his future plans, his future success, and the Avengers' plans to try to go back in time to stop him. Returning to the present, the Avengers place all of the stones into a gauntlet built by Tony Stark and Bruce Banner, and then Banner uses it to reverse the snap that Thanos had done five years ago. At the same moment, the 2014 Nebula, who had switched places with the current version of Nebula, traveled back. She opens the Time Machine portal, which then allows Thanos to travel to the present day from the past with his army and his spaceships to destroy the Avengers once and for all. Uh, and he just absolutely blows the hell out of the Avengers compound. By some miracle, nobody dies in that <laughs> attack. They all magically live, but everything is destroyed. Okay, so Tony Stark, Thor, and a now hammer-wielding worthy Cap fight Thanos, uh, but are overpowered by him. Just when all seems lost, backup arrives in the form of literally everyone. <laughs> who's ever been in a Marvel movie. Yeah, every character who's ever time. appeared for even five seconds in a Marvel film suddenly appears. Uh, they've been resurrected from the snap. They've been transported to the scene by Doctor Strange and all the other sorcerers. And now the most epic fight in the universe that's ever happened commences. Uh, good guys against Thanos' army. Okay, so Captain Marvel destroys Thanos' warships, uh, but he overpowers her and is about to use the stones again. Uh, he's decided that his first attempt failed because there were people left who still remembered the past. So he's resolved himself to use the stones again to reduce the universe to atoms and rebuild it from scratch. Tony Stark, just before Thanos is about to do this snap, uh, Tony Stark gets sort of a hint from Doctor Strange that this one in 14 million chance that we were told about in Avengers Infinity War is about to happen. Tony gets the stones back from Thanos. He uses them to do a snap himself. He uh, turns Thanos and all of his armies to dust, but the power surge is too great and Tony dies from the efforts. Following Tony's funeral, Thor appoints Valkyrie, the new king of Asgard, and he joins the Guardians of the Galaxy deciding that he's got to figure out who he is, uh, not who he's supposed to be. Steve Rogers then uses the same time machine that they've used before to return all the stones to their original locations, but instead of coming back, he decides to remain in the past to live a normal life with Peggy Carter. 
back in the present, an elderly Steve Rogers appears on the scene that he just vanished from to return the stones, uh, where he passes on the mantle of Captain America to Sam Wilson. And the final shot of the film, and the uh, final shot really of phase three of the Marvel franchise, is Steve and Peggy in their living room in the 1940s, finally getting that dance that they always wanted. The end. And no teaser scene. No teaser, that's right. There was, uh, I, I, I sat through the 38 minutes of credits uh, <laughs> waiting for the, uh, the, the teaser scene, but there was none. Uh, great job, TJ. Uh, again, a complicated movie, a three-hour movie, uh, kind of part two, but I thought, I won't say worked independently. I don't think you could have really appreciated this movie had you not seen earlier Marvel movies, and in particular, Infinity War, but a strong, strong movie on its own part. Uh, TJ Dahl, tell me your impressions of Endgame. Well, Mario, just to build on what you just said, watching this movie, I really saw the influence of the platinum age of television. That's a term that uh, TV critic David B. and Cooley came up with and wrote a book with that title. As you said, this isn't a movie that you can watch on your own. This is a movie that is not only a sequel to another movie that builds on almost 20 other movies. Yes. And the total number of hours, if you were to watch all the Marvel movies from phases one, two, and three, is close to 50 hours, which is absolutely comparable to the number of hours in, mm. say, Breaking Bad or The mm. Wire. And there are some minor characters who are important in this movie who you wouldn't recognize or know what they can. You know, they always tell you what you need to know. But if you've right. seen Ant-Man and then Ant-Man's sequel, you'll get that much more. So right. it rewards viewing like that. So it was really interesting for me to see that kind of, because there's a lot of conversations now about, you know, what territory are feature films taking up? What territory are quality television taking up? And kind of the difference between, you know, the franchise and the blockbusters and the special effects of these blockbusters, whereas the quality storytelling, writing, acting, depth of character that you get in high quality TV. And I'm seeing the influence go in both directions and how this movie and all the Marvel movies work as this interconnected network, and this is the climax of all of them. So that's a really, really interesting point, TJ. And I would suggest that it even speaks to the overlap and blending between the concept of feature film and the concept of this platinum age of television that you're talking about, because this movie also has a tremendous number of references to other movies, particularly time travel movies, right? So they keep having these conversations about uh, the ins and outs of time travel and sort of debunk all of the fundamental premises of so many other time travel movies like Back to the Future and uh, Terminator and, you know, on and on. Um, they go through a whole list of movies. And this was a continuation of something that started in Infinity War with Peter Parker re referring to those really old movies such as uh, The Empire Strikes Back and Alien. Um, so a really interesting point. And, from, and, you know, if you think back, certainly in my day, um, if for a television star to go into the feature films was a big, big deal and almost never happened. And it was considered to be a real mark of failure for a former feature film actor to appear on television. Right. So we're starting to see this uh, blending of uh, entertainment into, you know, I, I guess this blending of the concept about storytelling, in fact, and just different forms of storytelling. 
Really interesting point. I like that. And just to give a specific example of something that popped for me is there's a scene right after they announce five years later near the beginning of the movie, and there's a support group. And Steve Rogers is in that support group, and it is simply a dramatic scene of a character we are meeting for the one and only time in that scene, talking about his attempts to go on a date and how he, both he and his date broke down in tears at various points and how it's just difficult to get going. That scene doesn't set anything up. It's not, you know, we never meet that character again. It's not like Steve Rogers has a memory of his moment of helping this random man later, and that gives him the inspiration to keep fighting Thanos when all seems lost. It's not like that guy gives him a piece of information that he ends up using to beat Thanos. It is simply a dramatic scene there for character, atmosphere, and theme. And same with a scene when we see what Tony's been up to. And there's a pretty extended scene of him simply being a good dad. And I can imagine studio executives saying, this is three hours long. You got to tighten it up. We want to have more showings in a single day. This is what summer blockbusters are all about. And the Russo brothers who directed it, I'm very glad that they didn't do that because we spend a lot of time with these characters in moments that aren't necessarily furthering the plot, that aren't action oriented, that aren't just comic book scenes, that are just characters with feelings and inner lives. And I think that was the true power of this movie, that it captured those inner lives, those feelings. And it was all, this movie was about loss, right? Whereas Thor Ragnarok was about joy. And the, the theme of loss was very heavy and it was set from the beginning. I mean, that scene with uh, Hawkeye, with his daughters and his family and wife as they disappear was just devastating to watch. Right? And it goes from there to, um, uh, I forget exactly what the scene was, but the song caught my attention. It was Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic. And th th it's a fascinating song because when you, I printed out the lyrics here, uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy, play us a tune, do something to make us all happy. Do anything to take us out of this gloom, sing a song, play guitar, make it snappy. You're the one who can make us all laugh, but doing that, you break out in tears, right? So this was about, again, I think it continues on with a seven-ish sort of feel that so permeates the Marvel movies in so many ways, but capturing this sense of sorrow and that even though we tend to, uh, I don't know, get caught up in the action of all these movies, we start to realize that there are consequences. There are very human consequences to all these things that happen. And just to build on what you were saying about the movie being about loss, yeah, one of my major categories for the notes as I was organizing this was trauma and healing. There's a lot of that in this movie. And again, I can imagine the scenes where, for instance, Thor is getting closure with his mother being cut just for time's sake. Because that was a diversion on the way to getting the stone that they were there to get. That slowed the movie down to have this very tender, emotional scene between Thor and his mother, also infused with humor, but still. This is about the fact that some aspect of us is still wounded by something that happened at some point, And that this can continue to influence us or even control us our entire lives. And part of the work of studying the Enneagram, part of the work of just being a conscious adult is finding a way to make peace with these parts of ourselves. And that can happen through therapy, that can happen through support groups, that can happen through entheogenic ceremonies. 
My partner went to an experiential counseling school where one of the things that they do as part of the training are what they call trauma repair ceremonies, where they would have counselors stand in for somebody in your life that you needed closure with. It might be a parent, it might be an ex, somebody who's not able or willing to be there and that you can have the conversation with them that you always needed to have. And that there are a bunch of examples of this in this movie. And again, not what I would expect from a summer blockbuster, much less a summer blockbuster that's all about comic book characters that is the culmination of 21 superhero movies. Right. So interesting point about closure, because I think one of the strengths of this movie was the closure it provided uh, at the end of the film to all the different storylines and to um, helping us, in a sense, say goodbye to a lot of the characters. I thought the, uh, you know, again, I've, I saw, I saw this movie two or three times in the theater, uh, really enjoyed it, you know, went with my son one time, another son, another time. And, um, and again, watched it twice for this. I, I teared up at the Tony Stark Memorial each time, right? I mean, that was such a touching, sweet, heartbreaking scene. And it was exactly the right way to close it off, right? I mean, you know, famously, Tony Stark dies in this movie. Um, as my wife and I were watching, uh, you know, a lot of these movies together, she kept saying, is this the one where he dies? Is this the one where he dies? And I said, no, 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 it's not the one where he dies, right? And, you know, and finally, when we got there, I said, okay, here's where he dies, you know. So, so yes, spoiler alert, Tony, Tony Stark does die. But it was exactly right. Okay, um, and with the other ones too, the the, the uh, ending of the Captain America story was exactly right. Um, All the feels. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just it just you know wrapped up each one really really well and uh, in in very nice ways. So I, I thought closure was a huge element of this movie. And I tear up in the scene when Tony gets to have a conversation with his father, and in that scene. It's right before Tony's birth and his father doesn't know who he actually is. And he finds out that his father is insecure about being a father. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks he's out of his depth. He's asking this guy that he's just meeting for advice. And Tony gets to hear the father say, that kid isn't here yet and there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. And just to hear that love that Tony has wanted his entire life that he didn't get from his father. That's not necessarily the go-to place for a seven is I'm gonna lean into the place that I'm wounded. But of course, sevens need that healing and that closure, just like anybody does. Yes. And how it means the world to Tony when he gets it. And this overall theme, this overall motif of the movie felt really forish to me of just seeing into the wound of each character and honoring the sensitivity of each character, even a superhero, even a god. And, and to say, hey, look, they're suffering. Yes. And it is possible to not be defined by that or to not have that control me. It is possible to work with that. And I think that's why a lot of fours wind up becoming counselors. There's just that sense of like, I can be with you as you go into the darkness and I can help you through that. I'm not afraid of that territory. There's beauty in there and there's redemption in there. I, I can't tell you how many fours I have talked to who have said, well, I spent years in therapy and really liked it. So I became a therapist myself <laughs> you know? because it's that ability to explore that space and being willing to take other people there in a gentle and compassionate way. That is one of the gifts of the force. So I, I would agree with that. So let's see, uh, Enneagram themes. Okay. So we've talked about Thor. Um, you know, we started off talking about Th Thor 
eight-ishness. And again, I think this movie captured that very real set of dynamics that can happen with AIDS, right? Because, you know, when they kill Thanos, okay, and it's clear that uh, in, in the early, the first time they kill Thanos in this movie, and Thor's kind of losing control and chopping his head off, you know, just as a sheer act of rage and revenge, very, very eight-ish. That deadness he had, that lack of joy that he had after killing him, you know, it was just, you know, I feel no joy at this, I feel no closure at this, I feel nothing at this, right? It's just what needed to be done. And again, it sort of reflected that deadness inside that we see in a lot of eights who have lost contact with their vitality. I think this is something that a lot of eights can uh, relate to. And then that escape from that is, you know, people talk about the eight going to five of detaching, of just removing, of disappearing in a way. So his um, disappearance into the world of beer and video games and getting to the point where he looked like a bowl of melted ice cream, as uh, I think Rocket uh, <laughs> made, the, made the character. Again, a very real depiction of what happens with eights. So I, I, I really thought that was well done. There was another great eight moment uh, at the beginning of the film between Thor and Captain Marvel, who I think also is an eight. Yes, yes, yes. Where she sort of just takes charge and starts to walk off and they say, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to kill Thanos. So Thor stands up, walks up to her. He holds his arm out past her head to call his axe to him. The axe swooshes by her head, rustles her hair. She doesn't blink. She stares him down and he says, I like this one. Yes. And then it cut scene. So that's another great example yes. of that. Innate challenging you and standing up and earning their respect. Yes. Completely agree. A perfect eight moment yeah. there. And she had nothing to prove because she's as much of a badass as he is. Right. Or more so, actually. <laughs> right. Right. Near the end of the movie, in the resolution, when he's handing over the reins of Asgard to Valkyrie, it's another big eight thing is empowering others. Or again, that's you know one of the healthier aspects of eight less healthy eight might be threatened by somebody under me who wants to take the position that I have. Whereas what Thor does in that moment is he says to her something that eights can do sometimes is like, I see something in you that nobody else sees, that even you don't see. I see that you are a leader. That's what you are. This is your role. And she says, you know, I'd make a lot of changes around here. And he says, I'm counting on it, your majesty. Yes. So that's, a, I thought, a really beautiful moment of him relinquishing power and just how much power he gains by doing that. Yes. Just what a mark of health that is, of him coming into himself and saying, I don't need to be in charge. And I respect this other eight who had enslaved me in Thor Ragnarok, who was my jailer for a while. You'd think a, a, an eight would never forgive that. But you're tough and you fought right next to me and you're good. So you're the new king. This is one of the um, sort of telltale things about eights, and I, and I, I see this um, most in the navigating eight, is an ability to let someone else be in charge as long as you are competent, right? As long as I, re you really have my confidence. And there's that great scene also, a little bit of a contrast with this, where he gets onto the spaceship with Quill at the end, and he's saying to him, yeah, oh yes, you're in charge for sure, you know, and, uh, but 
you know that they're you know they're sort of dueling for control here and the others you know drax and uh and and as one of them said it with the chick with the antennas uh you know starts saying oh yeah battle to the death you know for for this would be great with knives, <laughs> with knives or, you know. it, it's just this wonderful little sort of testing of yeah i'm gonna let you think you're in charge but you know i'm not quite so sure so uh yeah so this issue of control with aids is one and uh you know and it is a beautiful thing when they are able to truly turn it over to somebody they feel confident in uh the other thing again just another aids thing and i might have pointed this out in a, a prior podcast is this sort of knowingly calling things by the wrong name right he you know he calls quill quinn for example and he calls uh, rocket quail. Uh, okay yeah yeah quail right uh, and uh uh he he calls a uh, rocket a rabbit you know knowing full well he's not a rabbit but uh, it's just this little you know dig that lets people know that you know i think i'm bigger than you by you know controlling what i call you and so forth just a very uh interesting and telling eightish sort of move so what other Enneagram themes do we see in this movie? I thought the last scene of the whole film where um, Steve Rogers and Peggy are dancing in the living room, just personally as a one, it was a beautiful representation of this idea of you can put down the shield and you can stop saving the world and you can just live your life and it's okay to have your own life. Yeah. And sometimes I know personally I struggle with that. And so it just, I tear up at that scene every time. Yeah. A message for the one is you have knocked yourself out. You have devoted your life, literally. You have sacrificed everything to build a better world. And you get to live in that better world. Mm, very nice. Another one that I saw was the symbolic resonance of Bruce Banner integrating the Hulk. Yes. Of yes. how, you know, we've talked about Bruce Banner probably being a nine, and the Hulk is his repressed anger. And then he figures out a way to combine Banner's intelligence and consciousness and control with the Hulk's power and physical form. And I thought that was a beautiful illustration of what happens when a nine really does step into their greatness and their power and acknowledges as well as integrates their anger is they have tremendous strength and power and now it's time to use it, to step in. And there's a scene maybe two thirds of the way through the movie when the Infinity, Infinity Stones have been retrieved from the past and they've been put in this new Infinity Gauntlet that Tony's made and Thor wants to be the one who puts it on and snaps his fingers. And it's Hulk that steps forward and says, no, it has to be me. That's mostly gamma radiation. It's like I was made for this. But imagine stepping in the way of an eight's will and saying, I will do the more difficult thing. I will do the more dangerous thing. I'm stronger than you. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to outdo you. Right. It's simply an acknowledgement of fact. And this is a contribution that I can make. And a powerful nine is a force of nature. There's something that we all need. And you know that's relevant to the nines listening to this. That's relevant to any of us is that when we have greatness inside, there can be a number of different forces that are saying, eh, you'd better not get too full of yourself. You'd better not get too big for your britches. And it's easy to conflate self-assertion with arrogance. And the healthy acknowledgement of one's own abilities and greatness benefits everyone. In this film, after he does the integration with the Hulk, he carries more of a presence. I mean, obviously, you're looking at the Hulk, so just physically, the Hulk does take up more of a presence on screen. But I think if you closed your eyes 
and watched all of the scenes that Bruce Banner is in, he has more of, there's more of an embodiment. He's more mm-hmm. assertive. He's more um, present or something. There, yes. There's a, he, he has like a bigger, he takes up more space, even just in the way he speaks. So I think that speaks yeah. to that, that integration beautifully. So, so that's really interesting. So the, the way I think about that uh, dynamic related to the type nine as regards to point three, uh, which again is not about anger. There's the issue of anger, but the big issue that the three has is self-effacement or uh, self-deprecation of making themselves seem unimportant, right? So it's Bruce Banner disappearing into the world, you know, to live under the radar and so forth. It's very uh, emblematic of what happens with a lot of nines. Even if they're in very important positions in organizations or society, they downplay and self-deprecate. And a big part of it is because they don't want to appear like they're seeking the limelight. So what this causes is this contradictory set of behaviors that we often see in nines between self-deprecation, but then this sort of lashing out and wanting recognition Okay, that you'll, you'll see in nines when they get stressed. This, the opening, when we're introduced to what my subtitles called Smart Hulk, uh, during this movie, um, you know, which is the, the integration of Hulk and Banner. They're in the diner and the kids come up and ask for a picture with Banner slash Hulk. And he willingly takes a picture with them and he's having fun with it. He's not showing off. He's not saying, hey, I'm wonderful, but he's also not shying away from the limelight. He's recognizing that this is what it is. I am this person for better or worse. There's no value judgment to it. I am who I am. And I have this kind of role to play and I can bring joy and happiness into other people's lives. And so that was just a wonderful scene for me that um, captured this sort of integrated nine-ish character. So really nice point. And as I think about it, that's really what's going on with a lot of these characters is that they are addressing this fundamental issue they have. With Thor, it's the limitations of power and the vulnerability of connection to people, right? The the vulnerability that comes in trust and learning to live with that and still feel powerful, right? The ability to take responsibility for others uh, in, you know, when I don't have to and integrate that. I think we saw a lot of that with Tony Stark as well of growing up in a lot of ways by taking responsibility for a child, even learning to use the way his mind couldn't let go of something that we see in so much in sevens to lead him into a place that he didn't want to go. Right. He didn't want to do the time heist. He didn't want to get back involved. He didn't want to be an Avenger anymore. But he allowed himself to reintegrate to the world by sort of reconciling this uh, this activity in his mind and using it in a very positive pro-social way. So did, did you guys notice any other examples of that uh, off the top of your heads? I'm curious. Well, one of the big ones is Clint Barton, because the movie opens with the scene where he's showing his daughter how to fire an arrow, and she's quite good. She hits a bullseye, yeah. and his wife is making hot dogs, and there's these other two kids that are playing catch, and it's as idyllic a family scene as there could possibly be, apart from dad having an ankle bracelet. And then all of them get turned to dust, and he's devastated and turns himself into this weapon of vengeance and makes it his personal mission to travel the globe and execute wrongdoers, gangsters. And then when it's up to him and 
Natasha of who's going to sacrifice their lives. They're fighting for the privilege. And both of them believe they have so much blood on their ledger that they should be the one who goes. But the difference is he has a family. Yeah. And it's his role as well as just what's the role that's foisted on him by the fact that she ends up being the superior fighter or at least outmaneuvers him in that moment and sacrifices her own life. That He's the one that comes back. And then when he's reunited with his family, we see just how much love there is there and that he will never take his role as a father for granted, not for one second, having lost it and having known what a toll that took in his heart and then being able to come back. Good. So a couple of uh, final points. Uh, TJ, you were talking about the father-son relationship earlier, and I just want to emphasize that as a father, uh, how pitch perfect that was for me and all the father-child uh, scenes throughout this, right? I mean, it is this. I remember um, prior to my first son being born, a friend of mine who had become a father about a year earlier than that said to me, uh, every piece of advice I got about being a parent is wrong. Uh, he said, the only thing I could ever tell anybody is that it's a hundred times worse and a hundred times better than you could ever imagine. And as the parent of four boys, I have found that to be true, right? Uh, more better than, than worse, fortunately. But um, it is this, there is this element of I think every father learns this is that you can't resolve your father issues until you're a father yourself, right? Because you can't truly understand um, what your father went through, I think, right? Uh, and again, it's not to cast aspersions on anybody who's not a father, but um, there is this extra insight I think one you know receives from being a parent. I thought that was captured really nicely. And I think for me, that is one of the things that summarizes what was so um, I'll say special about this movie. In the midst of this way over-the-top action movie that was hugely complicated with ideas of quantum physics and time travel and, you know, all sorts of other things, it was extremely human. It was extremely touching and really did a nice job of touching on some real human dynamics in a way that was quite emotional, I thought. Yeah, and along those lines, actually, now that you say that, there's a really interesting dynamic, father-son dynamic, throughout several of these films between Tony Stark and Peter Parker. Now, he's not his actual father, yes. but there's very much a father-son dynamic. And at the beginning of the film, when uh, Tony makes it back to Earth on this stranded spaceship, the first thing he says when he gets off the ship is, he says he looks at Cap and he says, I lost the kid, and he starts to break yes. down. And then they reunite at the end of the film, and then Peter is really the last one before Pepper lets him die, who sort of says goodbye to him. Right. So I think there's some of those, uh, let's say, daddy issues get resolved in Tony through his relationship with Peter over the course of these films. Yeah. And then there's the inverse of that with Thanos and his two adopted daughters, mm. in that he is such a tyrant of a father that both yes. of his daughters turn against him. And yes. the movie, in many ways, hinges the success of the time heist hinges on the participation of those two daughters. Very, very good point. Very good point. Okay, so um, final thoughts, guys, on these movies, on the Marvel movies in general, before we wrap up this series. Watching this film, Endgame, in the theater, I had a really incredible moment. This is the only moment that I can ever remember having like this. It's the scene where Cap finally picks up the hammer and is able to wield it. And we all see, you know, we all knew all along he was worthy, but now we get to 
you know, you had goosebumps, didn't you, teacher? Oh you, man, you just I, were up well, head okay, to toe so, with goosebumps. So here's sure. the moment in the film. You know, the <laughs> hammer starts to lift. You don't see who's lifting it. Then it throws, and Thanos is about to kill Thor, and it stops him from killing it. And then it pulls back, and Cap holds it, and simultaneously and involuntarily, the entire theater erupts in like cheers and applause. And it was such a cool moment of this shared group experience. You know, no one said, hey, let's everybody cheer. Like everyone felt the same thing at the same time. And I think that speaks to just the power of film in general. It's it's like this shared group experience. And I think it just speaks to what these films are all about. It's, you know, they're fun and they're popcorn movies, but they're also there's these deep themes that are relatable for all of us. Movies, I find, have a strong, especially movies about superheroes, a strong relation to ancient mythology. And in ancient Greece, plays were always updates or just adaptations of existing myths that the audience knew. So larger-than-life characters, epic settings, stakes as high as they can be. And in superhero movies, you've got a character like Thor who is literally out of mythology. And you've got other characters who may as well be in terms of their abilities or just the the iconic nature of their personalities. And to sit in a movie theater, which, you know, these blockbusters are some of the only events where people really cram into theaters and have that shared experience anymore, uh, is like a religious experience for many of us, where emotions are contagious. And we're looking at these literally larger than life figures on this huge screen, like their faces, their bodies are tremendous, and they're doing fantastical things. And if you try and apply science to it, it falls apart almost immediately. Like one of the things that cracked me up watching it this time is when it establishes that we are in Vormir in the year 2013, as if they track time <laughs> in space in any way like they do on Earth, that kind of thing. It's like, if you can set that aside and realize that this is fantasy, this this is really about feelings and human experience on a symbolic level, not on a literal level, and then engage with it in that group setting there's this group catharsis, which is the whole point of theater in ancient Greece, and that is also the whole point of religious observation, whether it's in a Catholic church or any setting whatsoever. Yeah, great. So, so uh, interesting point about about the uh, the dates. Uh, there were so many things like that where you really just had to suspend disbelief you know on so many levels going to different planets without spacesuits. You know, uh, I mean, where do you start with these things? But one of the joys of art is that it challenges us to suspend disbelief, right? I mean, it's like going to see a musical or something and people start break out, breaking out in, you know, in song, right? Well, that's not real life. That's not what happens. But it is illustrative of some experience, you know, some human experience, right? And, and I think this is the power of the Marvel movies. You know, I've made clear throughout this that I'm not as big a fan of these movies as you guys are, but each one of these movies that we've talked about, I have enjoyed watching. And as we really get to explore them, we see what they say about human nature. And for me, again, it's the same message of the Enneagram, is that we can transform through self-knowledge, right? That self-knowledge is a prerequisite for transformation. And in each of these movies and each of these characters, there is this, um, there are these events that lead to deeper and greater self-knowledge, which sets the foundation for growth and change and adaptation. 
So very much a reflection of how change happens. Very, very human and you know, and they're just damn fun, right? So what is better than learning about human nature and being entertained and thrilled and mesmerized at the same time, right? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, I'll also say that when it comes to Marvel, I was struck that, uh, again, there's been, there, there has been, there's so much emphasis on certain Enneagram types and not much on others, right? We didn't see a whole lot of fours in these movies, right? Uh, you know, Wanda, we, I think we talked about as being a potential for uh, some five stuff, you know, with vision and so forth. A lot of one with Captain America, um, a lot of eight, like we've talked about, a lot of seven, certainly. And again, these are some of the, um, I guess, the energies of the Enneagram that are about transformation in a way, right? Not that all types don't transform, but, uh, and, and for me, even though there weren't that many three-ish characters, there is this element of threeness embedded in this superhero idea, right? Of this being able to become something, right? To be able to become more than who I take myself to be. And with the proper work and exertion and effort, uh, and a little bit of luck and a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, support, we can become something more than we are. So um, I, I think that's probably what ties these movies together with what we talk about with the Enneagram. Any final thoughts there, guys, before we wrap up? I love you 3,000. <laughs> well, TJ, I got you in the six to 900 range, so uh, nothing personal. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Great stuff. All right, guys. So this has been fun. Now, uh, so again, uh, for, for the listener, we are in our potpourri season here, season three of the Enneagram and Movie Podcast. And this does wrap up our uh, five episodes on uh, the Marvel films. And we're going to, for the rest of this season, each of us is going to pick a couple of movies that we really like and we really want to talk about um, that we think have some really interesting Enneagram-related themes in them. So I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Enneagram in a Movie. Thanks for listening to The Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and join us on social media.